You're listening to the Difficulty Adjusted Podcast, the podcast for Bitcoin miners. This show is brought to you by Red Dirt Mining. I'm your host, Storm Rund. Mr. Alex with Kaboom Rex, uh, thank you so much for joining the Difficulty Adjusted podcast. Um, I think one of the biggest things that we wanted to talk about today was the article you recently wrote for Bitcoin Magazine, uh, the proof of work behind proof of work. Uh, every miner knows exactly what you're talking about, but I think one of the more interesting things is the people that actually don't know what you're talking about. Um, and so kind of give us the high level view of just what you're trying to talk about with the article and what you were really trying to elucidate um, because, you know, there's a lot of things that newcomers to the space really don't understand. And as being a broker for ASICs, I'm sure you've seen a lot of people come in and heard some horror stories about people that just were not psychologically, financially, uh, emotionally prepared for the demanding nature of Bitcoin mining. Um, so yeah, just tell us a little bit about those types of aspects of our industry that you really want to, uh, you really wanted to target with this article. I I had no experience in Bitcoin mining before I started working with Kaboom Racks uh, about a year ago. And, you know, I had a very poor understanding of the industry despite having been in Bitcoin for a while. And so I kind of wanted to uh, talk about that. But we just see a lot of conversations about Bitcoin mining, you know, the energy usage, uh, people attacking it. You know, you've got... Uh, goofballs like Charles Hoskinson saying that it's not decentralized enough and the mining's not decentralized. And I, th I think there's not a ton of discussion about, you know, how difficult it is to mine and how that leads to security and decentralization and really, you know, ultimately prevents consolidation of the market across the board. There's all these other... Uh, you know, really difficult factors that come into play that fit into making Bitcoin as secure and powerful as it is. So that's one of the things I wanted to, you know, kind of preface. And then you've got, you know, marketing slogans out there that we've seen over the last couple of years, like mining is for everyone. And the reality is it's not. It's it's not like buying a Raspberry Pi and setting it up, setting up Umbrella. Um, there's a lot of other factors that go into it that, you know, your average person doesn't know. And so, you know, I had a lot of, I run meetups in Arizona and I had a lot of conversations with people where they'd say, uh, things like, oh, you know, what do you think about the S19 hydros? I want to buy 18 and put it in my house. Um, and I'm like, yeah, well, you can't really do that, dude. Uh, that's not how this industry works. Um, so, uh, I think, I mean, that guy was probably not being truthful and just trying to <laughs> talk big, but... Um, you never know who has it, 600 amps yeah. of spare power in their house. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, it was kind of it was kind of Nick Foster's idea to write the article, uh, and he tasked me with doing it, so he gave me a launch pad to go after, go off of, and, you know, he had experience running a mine that failed just because of the brutal economics, and so did, you know, the two other executives at Kaboom Racks, uh, 
they all have experienced running mines that failed for a variety of reasons, whether it was regulatory, whether it was the market, uh, you know, a bear market coming and just not being prepared for it, or uh, whether it was getting rug pulled by their electric company, uh, raising rates pretty substantially without warning. So there's there's a ton of factors that make it really difficult. Um, and I think it's good for people to know. And it's just, you know, at the end of the day, you know, as a Bitcoiner, I want to have more sats. Um, I don't want to have less sats, you know, going on ventures that fail, uh, being unprepared for it. And I feel like a lot of the messaging is incorrect. Like, I, I think anybody has the capacity to, or most people have the capacity to do it. It's just whether or not there's the willingness to do it. And most people don't have the willingness because uh, it is a lot of work and it's painful. So. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so first, I mean, you hadn't had any experience with mining whatsoever before during, joining Kaboom Racks. Uh, you weren't home mining. You hadn't. Uh, did you have any experience with Bitcoin at all before joining Kaboom Racks? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had a fair amount of experience with Bitcoin. So I'd been running Bitcoin meetups for about a year at that point. Uh, I had done a Bitcoin podcast for a while, for like a year, uh, and. I'd been down the rabbit hole for a few years at that point, and it was just, you know, it was like a mind virus that took over, and then mining uh, kind of took over uh, that for me uh, when I started working with Kaboom Racks. But yeah, I just started turning screwdrivers on uh, S9s and then kind of moved into a bunch of different positions. So yeah. yeah. So you started out as a tech actually uh, with Kaboom mm-hmm. Racks. Nice. What were you doing before working there? So I was working social work. So I think one of the things that has helped me was I did that for seven years. It got so burnt out um, and disenchanted that I was really willing to jump into something else. And just hating my old job so much uh, made me more open-minded to to do this type of work. <laughs> so it's kind of an <laughs> interesting uh interesting um you, you have to be a masochist to, to work in that field too so 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 that's definitely something i wanted to talk about too in your article and also in the twitter spaces you did um this week was talking about that. i mean you're definitely the first social worker turned uh, bitcoin miner that i've met um but it kind of really lines up with what you were talking about with uh wanting to be a uh, and you're not wanting to be i guess but needing to be a masochist to succeed in this industry because of all of the bullshit that uh, all of the logistics put you through. Um, so, I mean, do you think that working as a social worker actually prepared you for the headaches that come along with being a minor? I mean, I, probably it's just weird, long hours, uh, just being in unfun situations every day and kind of learning how to cope with it. I mean, it's talking with crazy people cause everybody in mining is crazy. So, it's, uh, I mean, pro- probably, honestly, a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, and one thing you mentioned, too, is the, uh, the slogans that we often hear is that mining is for everybody. Everybody can mine. Now everybody can um, do, uh, you know, not to, not to single out any particular companies, but, you know, in this article, you talk about hosting. And that's, you know, when I first got interested in Bitcoin mining, that was the first thing that I thought about doing this, you know. I understand that there's a lot of work that goes into actual mining, so maybe I should opt towards hosting. What advice would you give for norm, just normal people who are starting out 
are Bitcoiners, they're deep down the rabbit hole, they want to have some exposure to Bitcoin mining. Um, you talk a little bit about this, but why might hosting not be the best option for them? It, it just adds counterparty risk, I think, which is the ultimate, you know, issue. And it's, it's the same idea. Like, are you going to custody your keys? Or are you going to leave it with a custodian that is probably rehypothecating it and doing a bunch of sketchy stuff just to earn a little bit of, uh, you know, interest on it? Um, so, that, that, I mean, that's something to think about, like, in, in, you know, leaving your Bitcoin with a custodian to, to earn interest on it uh, is, can be advantageous, you know, and some people find it, you know, interesting. Um, you know, hosting is, it, it's kind of a, a big, like, I, I think part of the reason why a lot of people, you know, get rug pulled by hosts is because they think that this process is easy and they don't understand the difficulties that goes behind it you know and i'm in a position where i'm interested in hosting and i've got a few candidates that i'm willing to do it and occasionally i will uh you know shout out a host and and give somebody a recommendation uh depending on their situation you know but there's certain things that like i want to ensure are you know flushed out uh and do my research i probably want to get into the mine you know and look at it look at what the ambient temps are, look how they're moving the air, uh, actually identify if they have the power that they say that they are, get familiar with the energy company. So you, you essentially, you know, should go through similar steps um, as you would if you were setting up your own mine when evaluating a host because you're essentially, you know, buying their services to, to run the mine for you instead of doing it yourself. So there's, you know, a fair amount of, due diligence that I think is good to do. Um, and I'm not anti-hosting in any way. Uh, it's just, it's really difficult, you know, and you, you, if you went out and built a mine, you would have a high likelihood of failure. And so to expect, um, compared to other industries, I would say like there, there's that chance of, uh, a failure, uh, and to expect that the host, uh, wouldn't be subjected to those same risks, uh, I think is kind of unfair. Um, and so, you know, some companies do it better than others. Some people do it better than others, uh, for sure. And it's definitely can be an extremely lucrative and advantageous thing to do. Like we have customers that do hosting on massive scales. Uh, we have host p customers that do it on medium scales, small scales. Um, and there's a lot of scenarios uh, where it makes sense, but there's just, uh, you know, risks associated with it that you have to, um, take into consideration because, you know, what happens to a lot of people just inevitably, like, even if they do their due diligence, like sometimes there's just factors outside of the host control, uh, that come into play, whether it's regulatory, whether it's, you know, their power company, like power companies are paying the butt, like they're hard to deal with. Yeah. Um, they, they don't, like to play ball a lot of times with people um and there's factors outside of them as a as a company that you know you have to also consider um whether it be politicians or you know media pressures or you know whatever whatever it is um so there's no there's no like real clear answer as to what you know the solution is for hosting at the moment um 
but yeah, I like to build relationships with people, get to know them, see their history, look at their mind, work with them. And then I typically feel comfortable. I know not everybody is in a situation where that's like really practical. Um, but, uh, and I'm sure the host probably doesn't want to do that with all their customers either. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I want to stay, I want to stay too on this, on this, uh, topic of, of hosting and how to vet hosts. And I think that's definitely something now that you've had some personal experience about, you probably have quite a bit of wisdom on. Um, one thing I want to touch on before we get, uh, dive back into that though, is I want to, there's this narrative that you see a lot, right? That you can negotiate with your hosting or with your, uh, power company, that power companies are in the business of selling electricity and you're buying electricity. And in our heads, it makes perfect sense. We're the perfect buyer. You know, we have, we stay up, they know, we, they know what our demand is. We don't fluctuate up and down. Um, and they ought to want to work with us so frequently that is not the case. And why is that? What is it that makes a power company so difficult to deal with sometimes? Yeah. I mean, it, it differs state to state and I'm not necessarily a guru on power companies. And if I would, I would probably be making a lot more money. Um, it, I mean, there's just a lot of different scenarios. So, like, every state is different in the way that they regulate their power and the way that they regulate their power companies. Um, so some states are more willing to negotiate. Some states you have uh, – so there's the power producers and then there's the utilities, and oftentimes those are different. Sometimes they're the same. And, uh, you know, typically the power producers are more willing to sell and the utility companies that distribute it are a little bit more hesitant to – but typically, you know, what it looks like across the board is once you get up to a certain power consumption threshold, uh, which is pretty large, typically around five megawatts. So you think around 300 to 330 new gen machines per megawatt um, times five. Um, so over 1,500 machines. Um that's when you get to start to, you know, negotiate power prices a little bit. And then you also have to find like a good location next to a substation um, where there's actual capacity because you might set up in a spot and there's not capacity for that five megawatts or, or higher. Um, so there's a lot of, a lot of factors into it because you're dealing, you're dealing with multiple bureaucracies at this point. I think is the have you actually have you actually heard of that exact situation playing out before where somebody fully builds out their infrastructure and then after the fact finds out that they don't have the demand capacity to power what they want to power? I mean, I'm sure that's happened, but you know typically uh, people don't get into that situation because they will only build out once they have an agreement with the with the utility uh, to purchase that power. Um, that would yeah. be pretty silly to, to do that. Yeah. I was imagining yeah. that would be a very rude awakening <laughs> if somebody actually went through that exact process. Um, so I, I want to go back to, to vetting hosts. Um, and when you actually go and visit a, a, a mining operation and somebody that wants to host your machines, um, let's walk through just some of the things that you might be looking at and let's, let's start with electrical. Um, have you, have you seen red flags before? And if you, what are, what are some of the things that you might be able to see as far as electrical goes that you say, man, I'm really second guessing this place. I, I, I don't think that this is somewhere that I want to keep my ASICs. Yeah. I mean, electrical, like, I, I guess you could look at the power purchase agreement 
And so as far as the, you know, physical setup, um, I don't know how easy it would be tell, to tell just from a glance versus really getting deep into the weeds on, you know, the dip. Let, like, let's lump power into that as well. Yeah. yeah. Just power, power it, electrical, the entire, yeah. Yeah, so you want, you want to, like the big thing, so what a lot of people do is they'll lock in a power price for an extended period of time. And so you want to verify that that's happened so that the power rates aren't raised on you during the, the because typically when you sign like some sort of hosting contract, it's going to be for a certain period of time. It's not necessarily going to be, you know, dynamic where you can pull the machines at, at any moment, um, especially when you're dealing at scale. I mean, there, there's a million different agreements in, in the way that people do it, but like, you got to think like if you're a host, you probably have agreed to purchase a certain amount of power. And so you have, if you have customers coming and going all the time, it becomes very difficult to, to build a business model around that and to, you know, lock in those power rates. Um, so if you're going in you're signing a year, two year, three year contract for a hosting agreement, you want to go and verify that they have their power rates locked in, uh, how long those are locked in for. So that's, um, probably uh a good step for sure and yeah i mean how much how much variance in that power rate are you personally i mean maybe not you personally but are you typically seeing or willing to tolerate because i mean a big again a big narrative that we're seeing right now is that holding the power prices where a lot of these mining operations thought they had them might be harder than they thought um mm-hmm. especially as we're seeing uh, energy prices continue to go up natural gas uh you know is through the roof. So yeah, I'm just curious what that variance that you think is acceptable is and where we ought to kind of put ourselves at a more realistic footing on what we expect out of a hosting provider. Yeah. I mean, that's going to be different for everybody. I think everybody wants four to six cents power, but that doesn't really exist. Uh, and, or at least in, you know, most places in the U S at the moment and especially not for small scale hosting. I think like you know, I was looking at Compass a year ago and they were advertising, you know, six cent power. And I think, you know, it's, it's gone up to the board, like a lot across the board. I think like a lot of hosts I'm seeing nine cent, um, power, which is a, which is a major difference. And, you know, you think like, like this is important for people to understand too, is the variance of profitability of the machine. So like, I like to think in Bitcoin terms. So I think of my power priced in Bitcoin, and so if my monthly um, or if my daily, you know, income from an S19 is about 40,000 sats and Bitcoin price is at $20,000 and my power bill is about 30,000 sats, that means that my daily income is only 10,000 sats, you know, if the Bitcoin price rips up to, you know, 40,000, you know, it's going to be a little bit more favorable. If it rips up to a hundred thousand, you know, that power price is not going to, is it going to be a breeze? But I think people have to, uh, you know, plan for the worst case scenario as far as Bitcoin price. And, um, but yeah, I mean, power's trending up for sure. And I think people are getting creative in the ways that they, you know, go about doing it. I think, you know, oil and gas is really cool, uh, but that's also incredibly difficult um, 
to get those agreements where you can mine. Uh, I don't have any experience with that, but just talking with people. So, what other things are you looking at? Are you looking at are you looking at structural aspects of it? I mean, are a lot of the mines that you're seeing sort of pre-built containers, or are they set up or from a third party, or have they been something that the hosting provider has built or set up themselves? Um, and how much are you actually uh, asking them questions about how they're planning for airflow? You said taking ambient temperatures and looking at those kind of things. So again, what are the red flags? Like, wh- what what would you see and say? There's no way that these guys are prepared to deliver on their promises for uptime or otherwise or profitability. Yeah, I mean, if you walk through a mine and you see a bunch of red lights on the machine, that's probably a good, um, a good. Uh, like, you know, the West Miners, if they bounce back and forth between the red and green light, kind of flashing like that, that's generally an overheat um, issue. So that's something that I look for. Um, you know, if it's just, like, burning in there and you can't bear it, um, it's probably not going to be a good time for your miners. And, like, I think it, it's been a hot summer in a lot of places, uh, which I think has been rather unusual that a lot of mines didn't prepare for. So there's a couple mines... Um, well, I think this is across the board, but there's been a couple months where, you know, there's been issues with machines overheating, uh, that might not be, you know, as much of an issue on normal times. But yeah, I mean, I think like the big things are like, like there's always going to be downtime. Um, the machines, you know, break, they're finicky, you need to get replacement parts. So looking at the competency of the staff working there, looking at the number of staff, um, you know, asking them, like, you know, questions about, like, which PSUs are compatible with my machine, you know, seeing if they're able to swap it, looking at the way they manage the mine as far as software, how how good they are at, um, you know, keeping track of all the machines. Uh, I think those are those are good things, so... Yeah. yeah, so the swapping PSUs and, and accounting for components of the ASICs that actually go bad is is, is interesting as well because mm-hmm. is that something that you see is consistent across the board um, regardless of the hosting provider that they will provide the same services as far as replacing broken parts and servicing down machines go? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I only mm-hmm. have insights to, you know, three or four hosting facilities myself. Um, I know the company has a relationship has relations with a lot more, um, so but I can only really draw from personal experience. So it, it's different. It's something you know I'm personally trying to work with, um, you know, these hosting facilities be able to provide better services to their customers in that regard because, um, you know, it, it's hard because if you have a bunch of different machines, like, you know, you can stock all these uh, replacement parts. Uh, but if there's a variance in the different types of machines, you're going to need a wide range of it. And it's kind of a lot to keep track of all that inventory. Um, and there's, I think, ways that, you know, um, Kaboom Racks can work with, you know, the host to mitigate that. Uh, and there's ways that the, the host can mitigate with that. But, um, yeah, it's something definitely interesting to look at, you know, the terms and, and ask what their processes are for that. I think typically what I've seen is people just send it in for warranty repair or send it like they treat it as your machine, um, which makes sense. So, you know, you can send it to a repair center, warranty center, which, you know, that's not always what needs to happen. Sometimes you can get it up and running. 
Yeah, I mean, that was that was one thing you talked about in the article as well, is about um, machine repairs as well as the logistics and supply chain issues that we're seeing right now. And, you know, I was in the Telegram group uh, for Kaboom this morning. I saw Nick's having his, his uh, garage sale going on uh, where there's a lot of the parts that are available. Um, so it's... W- when when you're planning out your own mine or uh, when you're giving advice to anybody uh, that is looking to buy parts and they're saying, you know, I don't have any broken machines right now, um, but, you know, I'm running one pet of hash, I'm running 100 ASICs. Um, what what do you have rules of thumb that you guys like to stick to for uh, for power supplies, for fans, for extra cables, for all those things that can go wrong? I mean, how what are, what are some good best practices uh, for planning for those types of things going wrong, which they will. I think having them on site is probably the best policy. Uh, having a ready stock that you can pull from and swap parts, and you know, unfortunately, like all of the, all the information is anecdotal as far as you know what the failure rates are, and then the failure rates are going to look different depending on your mines, um, you know, conditions. So, like if you're in a super cold environment. You know, for example, you're gonna have higher, you're gonna have high failure rates if you're not gonna keep the temperatures. You know, at a, if you're pulling in like negative 40 degrees Fahrenheit, um, that's gonna put a lot of strain on the machine because they're gonna be running hot when they're running, and then if they fall off, it's gonna you know go be affected by those ambient temps. Um, so I mean, in the in the best. In that situation, the best thing to do is figure out how to recycle the air so that, you know, your mine isn't super, super cold and it stays at a reasonable, you know, ambient temperature. Um, But uh, if you are doing that, uh, which, you know, a lot of people are, if you're in the reverse and you're running your mine super hot, uh, you're going to have higher higher failure rates, so you're going to have to stock up higher parts. So maybe you look at a failure rate of, like, you know, 10%. 10%. So you stock a bunch of PSUs and a bunch of control boards, um, and, and various other auxiliary parts. Um, but if you have it, like if you're in a data center, you know, which some people, you know, host their machines in data centers, um, you're probably gonna have lower failure rates because the, the air, the temperatures are going to be really, really solid. And so maybe you're looking at a one to 2% failure rate. And then it's also going to vary from me- machine to machine. And so this is one of the kind of the nice things. So like if you've been mining uh, for a while, um, so say you, you've had S19s running for the last year um, and now you're wanting to upgrade to the XPs, maybe a good thing to do is to do that in phases, small phases, as you look at, um, you know, what, what are going to be the issues with the machines? Like, okay, I know on the S19 the PSUs fail at X percent, um, you know, the firmware is bad. I have to reflash it on X percent machines. You know, there's other quality controls. Maybe a temp sensor's bad 0.5% of the time, or it's probably less than that. Um, yeah, stuff like that. So, so Alex, we're, let's say, let's, let's imagine me and you are running a, a mine. We've got, we've got 50, we've got 50 S19s uh, running and we're, we're talking about swapping them all out for XPs. Um, XPs haven't been out the whole long time yet. We've probably got people that have been mining on them max for about three or four months, if that. Um, you know, how how are we hedging risk for uh, a heat sink issue like we saw with the S17? Something that might not show up until six months in. Um, 
and I know you talked about doing it in phases, um, but you know, we want that efficiency gain. Uh, so how, how are we hedging for that risk that there might be something wrong with this model as a whole? Yeah. I mean, I think earlier production runs, you typically have a higher risk of failures or seeing those issues. And typically later on in the production runs, they kind of, you know, the manufacturers will iron out those issues a little bit more. Not always like that 17 was just a nightmare, but, um, I, I would say, you know, in that scenario, I'd probably buy one and take a look at it, get familiar with it, um, and then, you know, slowly phase into it. And then also be in contact with a lot of other, you know, minds. And, like, the, one of the best secrets that I found in the space is, like, you want to be buddies with the people in the repair center. Um, so you want to get that inside information. You want you want to make them feel good. You want to drive uh, business to them. You want to, you know, they're probably one of the most valuable people if you go to a conference to take them out to dinner and get them a drink. Um, because you can ask, they're, they're dealing with all the issues. So you can ask, like, what are the common issues and what are the common fixes uh, for these machines? So. Uh, so that's the sources of the insider info for these types of things. I, I mean, sometimes, so like we have a re- little repair shop that we're building out uh, at our facility. Um, I, I don't know if I'd call it little, but it's a pretty serious repair shop. And it just takes time to get up to speed. Like these guys, like that's that's all they've been doing is just tooling around these machines for years. Um, so they have a lot of knowledge. But, you know, the, the hard thing is like the manufacturers keep – everybody in the dark so like if you were to go to big main or micro bt and ask what the failure rates on uh you know their machines look like they wouldn't give you an answer um and so it's hard hard to calculate and then also you know you kind of have to factor in the repair center just sees broken stuff all the time so they might be a little bit jaded um but yeah yeah no i i mean i think that's interesting too i mean it truly is a problem that you see it, right? When you're when you're really trying to learn about these types of things and really starting to fall down that Bitcoin mining rabbit hole, um, the exact problem that you just mentioned a second ago is becomes pretty obvious. And that's the data on how these things fail, when they fail, um, what temperatures they tend to overheat at. It's all anecdotal. There's not there's not one source of authority that has run the data and done really professional experiments for trying to figure out these things. And there's not a handbook full of best practices on this stuff. You know, there's a lot of different disparate sources. And, you know, to that I say, welcome to a decentralized community. I mean, that's just sort of that's how it is. Um, and I think one thing, you know, that we, we both agree on as well is the fact that this is still such a young industry. Um, and a lot of those, a lot of that level of sophistication might not come next year or the year after that. It could be, take many, many years for that level of sophistication to, to hit this industry. And I think we're seeing things pick up and we're seeing, you know, big money come in. Um, but you know, Alex, where are we? I mean, where are we in this industry? I mean, if, if we're to compare it to something else and, you know, nothing quite comes to the top of my head immediately, but, um, Compared to trad- some sort of traditional industry, I mean, what what year is this in oil and gas or, or traditional data centers or um, a lot of these things that really influence our lives uh, quite a bit? You know, how mature are we? Well, I'm a guy that is a college dropout, had no experience, and started working in this industry and doing some cool stuff within a year. So, 
Um, that's a good, uh, <laughs> that's a, a good, good barometer for where we're yeah. at. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, it, it, it's um, wide yeah. open. Yeah. It's, it, it's crazy. It's wide open. There's nothing standardized. Everybody's trying to figure things out. Um, very, you know, amateurish. And like, part of that is like, um, you know, really frustrating. Uh, it'd be nice if things were, you know, a little bit more simpler and, and straightforward, but part of it's like really exciting because, um, I still think the barrier to entry is fairly low in that regard. Um, and if, for people that want to work in this industry that, you know, have no job experience, it's, they can, they can do some pretty cool stuff. I mean, like there's not a lot of repair centers and there's a lot of, uh, need for repairs so anybody can get in and start micro soldering now you know doing it well and having a good product is a whole whole nother challenge um and being honest but uh yeah it's kind of it it's it's wild <laughs> yeah what, what do you see yeah I know, yeah what so what are you seeing in the industry i mean repair centers is a great example um but of the types of services ancillary to mining that are totally underserved right now. And I know you talked uh, before we started about um, sort of the remote management. Um, and yeah, so, you know, and you also said you're working on uh, aftermarket firmware stuff. Um, so where, where do you expect a lot of the growth to come and a lot of the maturity to happen? Oh, it, it's everywhere, man. Like if you go to the conferences, you see everybody has an immersion tank. Everybody has uh, a container and not all of them are great. Probably most of them aren't the best. Um, but you're going to see a lot of like really creative solutions with recycling heat and creating efficiencies that fit into um, the world outside of Bitcoin mining. That that's completely wide open. So like you know, DCX uh, put out uh, an immersion tank that you can run in your home and heat your pool with. And it's fairly plug and play. Um, which I think is actually a pretty cool product. Um, I don't know if I'd buy it, uh, but, uh, I mean, shipping, we got a quote on shipping from Poland, and for one unit it was like 1400 bucks, which kind of sucks. Um, so that's, it's like, uh, I think around $3,000 for the dry cooler and the tank itself. I don't know if that includes the immersion fluid, which is also kind of expensive. Um and then an additional 1400 for shipping on top of that. Uh, but you're going to see a lot of solutions like that. I mean, minor management, like a lot of people out there are doing these like really cockamamie um, ways of managing their minds. Uh, so they're using tools like BTC Tool, uh, which is a fairly good you know, product, but it's very limited in what you can do with it compared to a service like Foreman. Um, but there is really good management software like Foreman, which is you know, unparalleled in what it does. It, it'll, it'll take your mind from, you know, an amateur mind to, you know, compre like the, this is what the public companies are using and anybody has access to it at a fairly reasonable price. Um, you know, the firmware stuff is, you know, can be a little bit of headache. I, I'm a, a nerd in that regard, but you can do a lot of really cool things with firmware. Like, I think one of the things that gets me really excited with firmware. So like, you know, MicroBT is a little bit better than Bitmain in this regard, but um, the ASIC manufacturers make the ASICs to run, you know, in very limited situations. And Bitcoin miners 
want to do all sorts of crazy things uh, with the ASICs. Um, I run them in my house, which are not really built to do. Uh, you know, people run them in all sorts of, you know, awesome, goofy ways and do cool things with it, like coin heated, you know, run it like that. The machines are. And I love the the, the yeah. uh, ASIC powered saunas and hot tubs. I mean, that's, that's some of the coolest shit ever. I mean, I can't wait till everybody has one of those in their house. Yeah. No, it's it, it's going to be really cool. Uh, you know, but the firmware allows for more uh, versatility in what you can do, whether you're overclocking it. So, like, we have customers in Venezuela that are running S9s at like 20 terahash. They're like putting, they're putting you know, higher capacity power supplies and essentially lighting them on fire because uh, their power is so cheap. And they're just going for that ROI uh, or to get as much hash rate out of it as quickly as possible uh, because power is so inexpensive for them. Um, and they could do that with the aftermarket firmware. Or, you know, everybody right now, you know, in the bull market, they're probably overclocking because like, oh, I have to buy less hardware um to see achieve the same amounts of power consumption and hash rate uh which is pretty i mean you added an additional 10 tera hash on 10 units and that's like another free unit um with the firmware being like the power draw not not being that um that insane and efficiency loss um but then you know now people are underclocking because they're like oh you know my, my power just increased in price uh relative in bitcoin compared to my income like my purchasing power of the income that i'm earning from mining diminished pretty substantially in the last couple months i'm gonna underclock to get that efficiency um up substantially um so i think you know the the firmware it's it like you're gonna run into bugs and it's gonna be a headache um i was running brains last night and you know bitmain does a stupid thing where they have like a hundred different variations of power supplies. And I was, of course, was using the one that they don't have support for yet. Um, so, you know, there's going to be these things that, you know, you get excited and want to do that you're going to hit a roadblock and have to wait around for that to get sorted out. Uh, but, you know, they're, they're getting better. Like there's, there's more monetary incentive for these guys to be doing this stuff. And it's a product that is def there's a massive market for it. So, those are some just brief highlights of things I think are going to mature. Yeah, I mean the, the firmware point is is really interesting, and you know everybody sees that brains efficiency boost, and they you know the first thing that came to my mind is you know what's the catch here? Um, so I mean for someone who says I mean for I, I mean I I think firmware is really exciting, and I think it's cool that you get to work with it quite a bit. Um, so where's the quicksand when it comes to firmware for people who are just starting to who have been mining and are just now saying okay I I'm ready to get around to actually running some firmware on my machines. You know, where are they, where, where, where have you heard people really get tripped up and what are, what are some of the risks that you actually run when you, when you download this firmware? Yeah. I mean, I, it adds another variable. So it, it could, uh, potentially, you know, the ASIC manufacturers are really good at making things complicated for the developers. Uh, so I don't necessarily blame the developers. I don't blame Brains. I don't blame Vanish or, you know, some of the other guys. Uh, it, it's just what it is. Uh, so, you know, there can be bugs uh, associated with it. Um, and you might have to, you know, add the firmware and remove it 
you know, periodically depending on, like, you could get a brand new power supply because one of your power supplies failed, slap it on, and all of a sudden the machine doesn't work. You know, maybe Bitmain doesn't even write firmware that supports the power supply they just sold you. Um, so that's uh, um, that's a variable, you know, you can see uh, for sure. Uh, and then there's also, like, you know, you, you want to do a lot of, uh, experimentation and know what you're doing before you you do this it's like oh like the max power consumption it says i can i can have is like 10,000 watts with this firmware but my power supply is only rated for 4,000 watts <laughs> like you probably very you want to stay in spec and you know the firmware will oftentimes say what the power draw is which is not going to be accurate so then you want to look at other things like meters or smart pdus to actually measure the the power draw so you don't melt cables and you stay in in whatever you know range your power supply can handle so you you can damage your machines if you don't know what you're doing i think you know the ultimate catch is like firmware is a very straightforward business model of you get the software to have more control over your machine um, and get performance increases and you pay a dev fee uh, to the firmware um, providers and distributors. And oftentimes that makes sense. If you get a 15% increase in hash rate or a 30, you know, a even higher 30% increase, like you're paying 2% dev fee or 3% dev fee, like, that that's pretty good you're still getting if you get that 15 percent increase you're you're essentially get a 12 12 percent increase um because you're paying that dev fee and it's the same with the pool like i mean you can pool service you can mine yourself um you can build out all the infrastructure to be your own mining pool uh, or you can use somebody else's to to lower the variance of your rewards so um i think it's a pretty valuable service yeah, the mining pool is interesting, especially uh, when we're talking about firmware, like the most popular firmware. One of the most popular f- firmwares is Brains, and the fact that you get to uh, not pay that 2% pool fee when you're using their their firmware. Um, you know, I think mining pools are somewhat of a confounding topic for a lot of people when they start uh, mining, because there's a lot of questions about what the hell is the difference, and how, how am I supposed to understand these payout structures? Um, and it's hard, it's hard for the average miner to just sort of bounce around between, uh, mining pools and get the actual data to make a sound decision on where the hell they should point their hash. Um, so I'm, do you have any best practices that you like to stick to for trying to actually figure out what the best mining pool, cause everybody's got an opinion on what the best mining pool is. And at the end of the day, we're probably talking about small differences in payout over the course uh, of a long enough pot time frame. Um, but, you know, again, depending on the size of your operation, those small efficiency gains could be a big, big difference. Um, so, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm curious how you think about that. Yeah, so, I mean, the way I think about it, I, I think it's important to be agnostic in regards to these products um, and becoming all loyal and, and fanboying after. So it's the same thing, you know, they're, they're saying we kill all our heroes in Bitcoin um and i think it's the same you know with mining and these products like um everything has its drawbacks everything has its benefits and those drawbacks and benefits are variable they're constantly changing uh depending from depending on the service so like 
you know, I, I have mined with Slush Pool uh, or Brains Pool now. Um, I think they have some pretty valuable services that in certain circumstances make sense for people to mine. Like if I was mining on S9s, I would 100% because Brains on the S9, I think, you know, for small scale miners, like what I was doing, I was just using them to heat my house. Um, it, it's the best firmware in that circumstance for what I was doing. And then, you know, getting the pool fees waived and just paying the dev fee is, is a pretty slick deal. Um, you know, with my S19s or S19, I decided to mine with Via BTC. Um, and it's just because they, you know, have a, a more consistent payout uh, structure. You know, there's SBI crypt, I, th- I think it's SBI crypto in yeah, Japan. SBI crypto. Uh, um, I think they're a good pool. Uh, because they don't have any fees and they essentially run the pool to they they send a lot of bitcoin transactions they just want to send them for free versus uh, um, internally versus paying another pool transaction fees which i think is you know kind of a cool reason to do that so i mean when it comes out to the end of the day like you know if you're home mining you know you're gonna you're gonna have your you're probably going to have different calculations versus your large-scale miner, but you have to think your electric costs are always going to be consistent, and so you want your rewards to be consistent. And the bigger the pool, uh, the more consistent the rewards will be. And that's why you see like a lot of people mining with Foundry, a lot of these large-scale, even though it's KYC'd and you know all that stuff that you know most of us Bitcoiners don't really care for. Um, you know, it makes sense for a lot of these publicly traded companies, you know, to mine with a pool like that and then get their auxiliary services. And that's that's another thing you have to look at, too, is like a lot of these pools are getting into auxiliary services, uh, which is pretty cool. So like, you know, brains, like if you're running brains, it, it makes a ton of sense to mine with, with brains pool. Um, and, you know, if you're not, you know, you're probably going to be a little bit more you know, agnostic. So, you know, the payout structures are, are kind of confusing uh, when you're reading about it. Like, I, I found a good wiki um, that I have saved somewhere uh, in my millions of notes uh, that explains it. And even looking at the expla- explanations is kind of c- confusing. But you, you just have to think, like, there's some f- pools that are luck-based. There's some pools that are uh, more consistent payouts depending on what the work you put in is so essentially like you know if you're mining with slush all the risk is put on you so if slush pool only mines three blocks that day um your payouts are going to be substantially lower versus if they mine 15 blocks your payouts are going to be substantially higher um and yeah over time it kind of kind of factors in but yeah i would say you know it, it it's fine to i mean pool signups are really easy there's not a lot of friction and this is something that's great about you know the way it is like if a pool is acting negatively so like say we have you know a fork like taproot uh come out and some pool is like you know we don't want to support it and you're a fan of you know that fork and you don't want to point your hash rate at it or if somebody is doing something malicious um you can switch away from that pool um you know instantaneously so you know there, there, a lot of people get into the space like i did because we're ideological um right so that that's a factor too 
Yeah, and, and you know, the ideological point also kind of goes with the, you know, I'm empathetic also to you said the importance of being agnostic when it comes to choosing these mining pools because, you know, it's easy to say immediately, I'm not mining with Foundry because <laughs> I believe in decentralization and I don't like the fact that every time I open the mempool, it seems like they've gotten four of the last seven blocks. Um, you know, I, I, I believe in decentralization and so I'm sticking with slush or I'm sticking with Luxor or, you know, I'm, I'm going for an underdog. Um, but a lot of times if you're trying to run the most efficient operation, that might actually end up shooting yourself in the foot. And I think that's what you were trying to get at for, um, as far as the importance of being agnostic in this. And the, I think, you know, there's a lot of narratives, a lot, you know, about, how a mining pool might be able to exert an outsize influence on, on consensus within the protocol. Um, it's a very common source of FUD from, from outsiders um, that it's too centralized or whatever. Um, but I think you, you brought up a pretty good point of just how easy it is and how little friction there is to just point your hash somewhere else. Um, whether or not enough mining power, enough hash is managed by people who care uh, might, might be another story. Um, but I, I do think I do think you're totally correct, and I think it's something that, that people should be aware of that you know it is pretty frictionless to to change pools. Yeah. Go yeah, ahead. I mean, I think I think there's a lot of demonization of miners in general, and you know it essentially comes down to incentives. And I think the big I believe strongly that the Bitcoin incentives, like a lot of these pubcos, are incentivized to do as much hate as they get, or are incentivized to do what's best for Bitcoin. Um, because if they don't do what's best for Bitcoin, uh, and, and you know, maybe there's going to be disagreements on what's best for Bitcoin, but if they don't do, if they do something malicious, um, to, you know, what the core of what Bitcoin is, uh, they're essentially shooting themselves in the foot. And I think, you know, the incentives are really good and are going to protect the network at the end of the day. And if the incentives aren't good enough for, you know, miners and for participants in the network to, you know, not maliciously attack it or withstand malicious attacks, then Bitcoin failed. Like, that's what it comes down to at the end of the day. And I don't think we're there. Um, so I, I believe very strongly that, you know, we're in a pretty good spot and that, you know, most of those attacks, like, I mean... <laughs> You look at these guys that are like proof of stake is going to be infinitely more decentralized than proof of work. And it's not true. You know, you look at how how difficult would it be to control 51% of the network hash rate? It'd be incredibly difficult. Like, you know, it's mind boggling. It's mind boggling what it would take. I mean, and then it's, you know, it's akin to launching a military campaign on the rest of the world to steal all the gold and then dumping the gold in the ocean. I mean, really, that's, that's kind of what it's like. Yeah, no, it it is exactly. I mean, like there's the aspect of like the physical infrastructure. I think that's what people oftentimes think about Like, oh, they can just build out all this physical infrastructure because they have a money printer like that. That's impossible. You, like, you can't generate, you know, all those things where, like, oh, Bitcoin network uses more energy than Argentina. Like, where are you going to get the entire country of Argentina's capacity worth of of electricity um, and infrastructure to make that happen? That's impossible. But even if you're able to co-opt, you know, pools, like, like every time you look at, uh, you know, a, fork, a potential fork 
in Bitcoin or an update, um, people fight tooth and nail over every little detail. They're like, is it going to be user activated or are we going to do a speedy trial? You know, um, think about that, getting all of these different participants in the mining sector to come in agreement on that. And then factor in the fact that, you know, there is a fair amount of pools out there. Um, you know, there's more than 10. There's actually, you know, like 20 that are viable that people could switch to. And then the fact that, you know, switching an entire mine, like, you know, 100 megawatts worth of, uh, you know, machines, you can do that in less than five minutes. Um, you know, if they're running good good firm or good management software. Um, but, uh, like, yeah, it's... I, I think it's something to be bullish on, you know, and there, there, there's there's always the importance of being adversarial minded and having those discussions, um, you know, and looking to improve the structure of, you know, the mining, you know, industry and, and you know, to question, you know, are the incentives good? It's really important, um, but I don't really care for, uh, you know, entertaining like the the proof of stake nonsense um fud you know from people like chris larson or charles hoskinson which is usually who it's coming from so yeah. i saw a tweet from Corey before we hopped on that was like ripple is showing interest in acquiring celsius or something like that and the caption was just match made in heaven <laughs> but, but you know that's 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 all that needs to be said about the proof of stake uh stuff um yeah, but you know, we're running up on an hour here and something I wanted to just ask you, um, you know, somebody could read your article and be mistaken that, uh, all there is to mining is just headache after headache after headache. Um, and for some reason it is just masochists that enjoy this. Um, but what is it, what is it that kind of keeps you going through all the headaches? I mean, what is it that you love about this industry? Um, and you know, what is it about it that sort of lit your fire uh, to switch your entire career over, um, to want to keep learning more about firmware, um, and to just become so knowledgeable about the space in general. I just think it's really interesting. I mean, I, I, uh, I'm pretty middle bell curve, you know, I'm not like super dumb or super smart. Um, and I'm trying to, I was trying to find a spot, you know, where I fit into this industry and, uh, I probably, you know, if I was going to get into programming to do anything significant, it would take a tremendous amount of time, you know, and hardware is just, you know, as difficult as hardware is, you know, for me and the way that my mind works is substantially easier. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's definitely like the ideological factor that drives me of like, I think Bitcoin fixes a lot of problems. I think Bitcoin mining fixes a lot of problems. I want to see, you know, I really hate, you know, the KYC exchange infrastructure, I believe strongly, you know, and like what Matt O'Dell, you know, has talked about on Citadel Dispatch. Like I, I got to hang out with him in Nashville and thank him because his uh, uh, podcast with like Diverter and um, Ronan Miner and uh, uh, Econo Alchemist, like that, that's what really sparked my interest in this space. Uh, the first time I heard that and probably helped launch me into this uh, career path. So I think ideologically, there's a lot of drive there of like, I think mining is a net benefit for the world, uh, more so than, you know, what I was offering as a social worker. And so, you know, it feels good. It, it, it feels like, you know, 
it's purpose-filled work um, at the end of the day of, like, I get to be a part of, you know, this movement, hopefully in a powerful way that, um, you know, is genuinely going to make a difference. Um, and I get to do it. You know, there's that aspect of it. And then I also get the, the self-interest um, aspect of it of I get to learn a lot of valuable skills that will hopefully uh, transfer, you know, into the future, into a career. And then I also, you know, get to mind myself and learn how to do that, uh, which will hopefully also be lucrative. Um, so it's definitely like there's a lot of self-interest in it that that like, you know, I can do it. <laughs> it's, it's one of the few things I can do in this space. And then, uh, um, yeah, I just find it super interesting. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's, that's awesome. I think that's why we all get into it. Um, the, the story of how, I mean, Bitcoin mining really does improve a lot of things, whether it's energy infrastructure, um, or just security of, of the asset that we're all here for. Um, I, I, I agree. It's very easy to believe in, um, and, and being able to find a niche in this. I mean, you know, that's, that's why we're all here too. Um, well, I think, you know, coming up on an hour, I think we should, we should probably call it here pretty soon, Alex. Um, one thing I think I wanted to just give you a chance to do is, uh, shill anything that you're working on at Kaboom. Um, anything else that you're working on as far as Kaboom Racks? I know you, uh, uh, and firmware, uh, I know you said some of it's a little bit tight lipped and, uh, but I just want to give you a chance to just talk about talk about anything you wanted to. Yeah, I mean, we sell ASIC hardware. If you want to buy it, we're the best place to do it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, there, there's, a, there's a ton of stuff that we're trying to dip our hands into. Um, we're trying to help people fix their minds. We're trying to help people build their minds, you know, consult on that. Like I said, our three executives had experience running their own minds uh, for various times and no – uh, the pain points. And then we also, uh, um, uh, what's it called? We, we also have like an insight into the industry because we sell to all these people and we know their issues and we have these relationships built out. So, you know, starting from scratch, you know, lean on us, um, if you want to. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I've got my DMS open. Like I said, like, you know, I, I have a lot of gratitude because, you know, people like Nick Foster, you know, and other people at this company have invested a lot of time and energy into me. And then, you know, people in the space, like something that really blows me away is I hang out with all these people that, you know, I buddies with Neil. I hung out with Econo Alchemist quite a bit. Um, have yet to meet Diverter in person, unfortunately, but like, you know, him and I were tweeting at each other yesterday. Um, like all these people, you know, have spent a tr- in a large amount of time, like shooting this shit with me, uh, answering my endless questions about everything. Um, uh, I'm happy to do the same. You know, my Twitter DMs are open. I'm happy to chat on Telegram. I'm happy to hop on calls. Uh, my girlfriend gets kind of annoyed about it sometimes. Um, but you too. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So if anybody, anybody listening, it's got questions or, or even if I said something dumb and you disagree with like, Oh, I'm sure, I'm to. sure they'll let you know. Um, yeah. well, all right. That's, uh, that's Alex Kaboomrex. 
thank you, Alex, so much for, for coming on the show and, and sharing your insight, sharing your wisdom. Follow him on Bitcoin or follow him on, on Twitter, that Tucson Bitcoin, and join the Kaboom Racks Telegram group if you're looking to buy ASIC hardware. I mean, they are the spot to do it. So thank you so much again, Alex. Um, and thanks for coming on the show, everybody. Yeah, great meeting you, Storm. <laughs>